Active management, in my mind, gives the client an idea of how you're thinking about things, right or wrong. And it tests your mental ability to go out into the marketplace to see if your biases are correct, if that makes any sense. I know that the markets in today's environment are somewhat challenged, right? We have inflation, we have this, we have that. We've been on record well before this inflation scare came on board saying, hey, we think that these really high growth companies are going to be really, really a challenge in the next few years. We even did a podcast with some very well-known short hours and we put that expression in a view. It doesn't mean we loaded it. But that gives you an idea of active management. That basket made us a lot of money. But initially, it lost us money. So it's the gasp and then uh, we were right. So I am a firm believer in active management. I just believe that it should be kind of that core satellite conversation so that you can be thoughtful and again, how to approach that vertebra to the client. Welcome to the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital. Join us as we learn from pros who have helped thousands of investors live better lives. I'm Brian Moore, and I'll be chatting with some of the brightest minds in the financial advisory business, bringing you insights on practice management and investment research that works for advisors and their clients. Joining me today on this episode of the Active Advisor Podcast is founder and CEO of Quebec Wealth Management, Bruce Lee. With over three decades of experience in the world of finance and numerous accolades, which include being named among the top financial advisors by both Barron's and the Financial Times, Bruce's longevity and success in the financial industry is a testament to his expertise in multi-generational wealth. Bruce lives in Chicago with his wife and their two daughters. Today, we'll focus on what it means to monetize intuition and what it takes to empower clients to become the CEOs of their own capital. Welcome, Bruce, and thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Happy to have you on. Okay, so we're going to jump right in here. Traditionally, here on The Active Advisor, we'd like to get the conversation going by asking each of our guests, what is the first memory you have related to money or investing? Oh, geez, that goes back, I think, all the way from me back to, I'll be brief because it really puts an age on me, but it goes all the way back to 1985 when I worked on Wall Street. And I walked into the boardroom and I realized that I was in a total foreign country when it comes to investing because I saw some, it was back in the day of Quotron and there was no internet or cell phone and people were just bustling all over the phones and that, and I got to visit all the departments of the firm that I was working with. And that was my first experience, 1985. That was an awesome time, I'm sure. I remember my first time down the floor. You have to marvel at how it all worked, right? Yeah, I miss it. I'm, I'm fully aware now that we look at screens, but just the sheer bustle of it gave you a certain energy level and it really wanted to make you, it was the exact opposite from work from home. You wanted to go into work because of the energy level. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, we're going to pivot to the present moment here. So Keybeck is a boutique investment advisory firm dedicated to partnering with the aspiring entrepreneur, the pivoting business owner, and the multi-generational family. Can you tell us about the journey that led you to starting your own firm? And within five years, how's it going? Well, I'll first to start by saying, you know, I think when you migrate from the banks to an independent advisory firm, you have to ask yourself the question, how are we different? It doesn't have to necessarily be better. How are you just different from a differentiating perspective? And since that we work with the banks as our partners, you know, I want to be thoughtful of and how that partnership works. But invariably in the last 20 years, when the industry changed from being the banks being a proprietary firm, you know, pre-08 to more of a service-oriented organization due to regulation, it really left a wide swath opening 
to look for market segmentation on what we thought was the type of client we wanted to service over the last five years. And that was servicing the entrepreneur, as you said, you know, migrating them from being the CEO of their business to being the CEO of their capital. We felt that was where the most value add was. And there was an appetite for it. So although they were an expert in their space, they really weren't an expert in financial services and all the things that were available to them. So we started on that journey trying to educate that particular market. And it's something that I was always involved in with the banks. But due to the independence factor, we had a lot more solution sets that we could come to the table with to service that particular client. And the where it's going now, I mean, you know, I can only go based on assets under management, but, you know, we're close to breaking a few billion dollars. We're bigger than I've ever been when I was at the bank level. And we continue to close, you know, new relationships every day. But the real passion part or the part that's so fulfilling is our clients, we're the center of their world. And it's very satisfying, you know, to get those phone calls that have sometimes literally nothing to do with finance and it's just, you know, more to do with day-to-day life. And um, I find it very satisfying. No, I'm sure that's definitely, when you get that, you almost feel like family, should I dare say. I would say that's actually incredibly accurate. There is no nine to five. (laughs) Well, that has its ups and downs, right? (laughs) Hey, look, if my phone stops ringing, we got problems. There you go. There you go. One thing I found interesting about Quebec is that you intentionally don't have advisors on staff. Can you elaborate on why you structure the firm this way and how it helps differentiate your client experience? Nothing against advisors. Advisors work very hard, but we have found that advisors are more aggregators of capital as opposed to solving solutions and problems. And the intrigue for me as someone who runs the firm is sometimes those incubated solutions can take a year or two, five years, six years, seven years, eight years. And when you're an advisor on a grid, it typically promotes a shorter term behavior. And so it doesn't make it bad. It just makes it different. And It didn't align with what we were doing and call this kind of a a human experiment mentally for me. I lived in a world of advisors. Okay. And I mean, I have a lot of respect for a lot of people, but I wanted to see if our firm through our network could attract clients, which means was our offering something of value in the marketplace. And I'll just take you a couple of steps back again, without overindulging or boring you to tears. Um, You know, back in 1985, because I can rant, back in 1985, if you think through, right, Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR, you know, technology was just the start. Uh, PE multiples were at eight times. Interest rates were extremely high. Almost feels like we're kind of going back to that. The amount of sophisticated products and offerings and solutions were very, very archaic back in the day. And as you kind of grew up in the industry, you got introduction to derivatives, junk bonds, all that kind of stuff, that which evolved into high yield, mortgage-backed securities, so on and so forth. I genuinely feel that the first rail today is somewhat antiquated. So some of these small organizations, like you talk about Carlo, I mean, they're a huge institution today. KKR, mm-hmm. which in 85 was just starting, is an institution upon themselves and very well deserved. They've added, a, they've done a lot of great things, but the clients that were getting involved were genuinely interested in that innovative part of that first rail. So we started kind of from scratch saying, again, how do we reinvigorate or make alive that first rail so that the client feels that we're differentiated by bringing different things to the table? And the only way to prove that is not having an advisory force selling that. It has to be kind of a word of mouth. And it's through that 
proprietary network that we've had a lot of success with. People don't feel that they're being forced to the table, if that makes it. It's a very organic discussion. Nice. And I think it really dovetails nice into kind of the next question I'd like to ask, which is you don't refer to your clients as clients. You really refer to them more as founders. And can you speak a little bit more on that concept? And I'm sure it feeds back into kind of the differentiated experience that you're offering. That's a terrific question. Let me embody it relative to an analogy. You know, when you're a little kid and, you know, the teacher would ask you to raise their hand and say, what do you want to be when I grow up or what do you want to do? You'd get the standard answer. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be an engineer. I want to be a teacher. These are all great careers. The founder gets up and goes, I'm going to invent something and be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The DNA makeup of that founder is completely different. And they think way outside the box because they have to be, it's an overused word, but they have to be somewhat disruptive by nature and they have to have a vision. And then they have to be able to what, you know, when you said earlier, monetize that intuition into a, some form of capital. And so when we go to founders, we're trying to dive into how they think about things because invariably their angle of the world is completely different. And if you kind of look through that Rubik's Cube or whatever, they have something solved that others don't. And we try to either mirror that with the solution set we're bringing to them or try to better understand how they're fishing so that we can be more effective managers to them for the future. So they're not going to just fit into that standard. I'm not saying they're not going to do 60-40, but they're bored by that 60-40 discussion, if that makes any sense. They don't see any value in that. No, that definitely makes sense. I think you're, sounds to me like you're really kind of going and talking to people that are you know, as you mentioned, disruptors in that universe. And I would yeah. think it probably brings about a different way of looking at the markets in and of itself. I want to shift back to you a quick question. Since you do kind of have an interesting take on the, I don't want to say advisory business, but we're going to say the, you know, monetizing your wealth or your brain power industry business. Are there any different technology tools that you use that you utilize as part of your firm and look at to help kind of achieve that process? Well, that's a terrific question. One of the great advantages about being in a bank, right, is you can go from floor, let's call it, if the bank occupies four, four, five through 20, you can go through each floor and find the expert, right? Does that make any sense? And no, definitely. I think there's great comfort for that for the client. They go, hey, you know, listen, I don't have the answer, but if we go to floor six, we can get it for you. And there will be a more than capable individual being able to handle that answer. That's mover advantage for the client. And there's a value there. Mm -hmm. I always think in terms of what's the value to the client. We kind of said, if we're going to create more definable outcomes for our clients, okay, we have to have what I call a digital workforce. Okay. And that's by using various financial technology tools so that we're not just this banana republic out here you know, kind of gypsies managing money at, at our whim, so to speak, because the contra conversation to being independent is, you know, what's your discipline? What's your process? What are the factors that influence that? Because we're all still buying and selling a lot of the same securities. We utilized, I want to say, 30 different partners that help us design, analyze, and create what we consider outcomes by using their technologies. And so therefore, our digital workforce, we feel, well, my bias is obvious, but so I'll just sell my own book here. So just everyone hold on to your checkbooks. I'm grabbing for it. But yeah, because I really want this to be more educational than any type of advertising. But my thought process is really simple there is it assures that the client that we're drawing data from sources that we think holistically can get them to their solution. So I always say, 
you know, kind of simple mode. If it's quicker, faster, easier, and cheaper for the client, that aligns with our values. So, you know, the negative sometimes of going from the second floor to the sixth floor is, you know, this human element, which I think gives you a feel good when you should start chipettoing that, right? It could take weeks for that outcome, right? So if we can produce even the same outcome for the client, but do it three times faster and less expensive, we think that's a value proposition for the client, if that makes any sense. No, without a doubt. And getting back to, I think that can actually even streamline the process, getting back to your bank analogy of going from the fifth to the sixth floor to the seventh. Because some of the times you need to make appointments and everything else, so it definitely seems like choosing the right tech stack or having the right services and tools at your disposal can help, you know, really expedite things along. Well, I'll share this with you. You know, biases now, I don't care if you have a good bias or a bad bias, but if you're wrong, that bias can create outcomes that could take you years to recover from. Okay. So the reality is having empirical data that can help drive solutions. I can then set, set kind of a, a standard bare line in the sand saying, okay, this is where the seesaw exists. Now, intentionally, if we want to go more towards the right, that's fine. These are the outcomes that come from the right. If we want to go more towards the left, these are the outcomes that come from there. All good advisors do it. It's the speed in which they do it is becoming the critical factor. So, and why do I keep saying that? The influence is just even in the stock market itself. Just let's use, forget bonds, but let's throw them all in there, right? I think we all intuitively know that there is a lot of machine learning going on, right? Forget even the high frequency trading and so on and so forth. We could go into, we could have a whole nother, you know, story on that, but just the way bespoke newsreels are coming out, be it false or not false, right? Monitoring how much speed this information is coming at is making what I call, you know, hashtag volatility up or down, promoting bad behavior. And so hopefully what our technology does and our data does in broad swaths is gives us the ability to help, again, see data sets so that we're not just off the cost making what I consider poor bias decisions. Even if we're right, it could be poor because we're not thinking through all the variables that we need to do to make thoughtful decisions. Oh, understood. Without a doubt. You mentioned volatility. And so you've got my trader, the trader in me, you know, curiosity peaked. Let's shift gears and talk about this concept of monetizing intuition and how that plays into your views on volatility versus risk. For one instance, if we look at some of your entrepreneurial clients, Typically in my kind of history, and please correct me if I'm wrong, they typically make money in one area or in a general area. How do you help kind of work with them and transition them to a position to grow that over time? I would assume in many areas, but I would love to hear, you know, Quebec's take on it. Well, I've often said to clients, and feel free to use this line, is, you know, it's an evolution, not a revolution. Okay, so typically an entrepreneur will come in where let's just put an even set number between 50 to 100 million, even greater. And they'll come in saying they'll want to almost over logic every investment. And they're always looking for the three variables, access, alignment, and edge in everything that they do. Okay. So technically you have to, you know, I always say to the potential client, do you want to know what time it is? Or do you want to know how the watch is made? If you want to know what, what time it is, this is the time and this is where you're going. If you want to know how the watch is made, but if you're going to interplay both, Okay, what's going to happen is you're going to start swirling because in that there are unknown variables that we cannot predict. So meaning, you know, kind of Ron Burgundy, I'm, you know, 70% of the time I'm right all the time. You know, it's the 30% that you're wrong, that you're really wrong. So you have to, 
Yeah. yeah, that education part has to be part of the process. And then number two, I think you have to tell them and be very candid on things that you're not. So, you know, when I've been in, you know, quote, pitches before, and they'll say, well, the other advisor that's, quote, pitching me says I can make a 9% return. I don't like throwing out numbers like that, because if that's in fact the case, then they shouldn't even be talking to you. They have a window to the future and they can predict it. So I think to take it back a notch, if you look at investments as a vertebra, right, there are certain parts of your vertebra that are very valuable for you to kind of stay standing. You have to have the kind of the basic block and tackle discussion as all advisors do. But then as you start moving across the spectrum, start talking about how access to various investments can differentiate you from the rest. And they have to appreciate that pennies lead to nickels, lead to dimes, leads to dollars. That's mm-hmm. kind of where I'm at. No, without a doubt. I think that's one of the things. And since we both started on Wall Street, it, it's funny. An old adage runs through my head that people make a lot of money in one name, but they keep it by invested in many. And so I think that really you've touched on that quite nicely and, and how you and your firm's approach to that. Yeah. And I translate that back to the client, you know, because they go, well, if you really like it, why don't we just buy it all? I said, OK. I said, terrific question. You know, if you were to sell your business tomorrow, are you better off having one customer growing at 100 percent? Or you read it better off having 10 customers growing at 25%. You tell me. And they go, well, you know, I'd rather have 10 customers growing at 25%. I said, okay, because you know the enterprise value of your business is going to be worth more, not less. Because if you have one customer, the buying your experience of that customer walking away goes from 100 to zero and the value of your company drops to nothing, right? So think in terms of, again, this investment vertebra. As we move up and down that vertebra, what creates a solid foundation? I would rather risk adjusted have that. And that's kind of how I start involving the client to a risk adjust because they look at diversification as you're a loser. You're just watering me down. You talk like everybody else. But when you can translate that into how they're thinking about it for their business, it just resonates with them a little bit more. No, hundred percent. I mean, that even clicked for me, but definitely when you take a step back and you think about it, you're like, yeah, you're right. That actually, it definitely seems to be because you are right. Their brains are wired a little bit differently thankfully, because we wouldn't have half the innovations we do today without them. Right. But it is like you have to find that way to translate this financial world in which we live in to something that it resonates with them. And I think that's one of the things that in speaking to a lot of advisors, the really good ones have that ability to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, like any skill, I hope it's worked on, but I think it's also part just kind of innate talent as well. Yeah. As a seasoned financial professional, what advice would you give someone thinking about beginning their independent journey? Once you get over the hype of, this is something that actually I'd love to give all independent advisors who are thinking about becoming independent advisors. I hear in the marketplace, oh, you can make more money, you can make more money, you can make more money, you know, being an independent advisor. I think that's the wrong reason to go independent. Because once you're done with calling your firm River Tree or some obscure name, and then you could show everyone in a field having a good time and everything like that. And you settle back in your seat, you're going to ask yourself, what am I really good at? What do I really want to be? And so I think you and your team needs to sit down and ask yourself the question, because banks are, we're trying to be all things to all people. And by the way, they should. They manage trillions of dollars. You know, if they said, we're just dealing with entrepreneurs, that'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're just dealing with retirees. But the RIAs that I've known, I have a lot of respect for a lot of independent RIAs. And you even see me on LinkedIn, you know, pushing like to a lot of RIAs because I appreciate their differentiation in the marketplace. And so the ones that I find that are very successful 
target the market that they feel they're really good at. That I don't want to overuse the word passion, but something they're committed to, if that makes any sense. And that they feel that they have particular edge in that particular space. And clients can smell that. And so they can intuitively feel that. Why? Because as you start drilling deeper and deeper into the due diligence questions a client may ask, that client's going to go, you really know this space, don't you? And I go, yeah, for no question. And so we actually, in our weekly and monthly you know, gatherings together as a team, we always ask ourselves the question, are we really good at that? Because if we're not, let's just not do it. And let's have the courage to tell the prospect, we're just not good at that because our brand actually means this is kind of who we are. So that would be my advice to those going independent. Sit down, think about what you're really good at, and then just keep going after that particular vertical. Because in our situation, when I was at the banks, we kind of covered everybody. If anyone had an asset, we'd bring it in. And that doesn't make it bad again. It just makes it different. But by focus, us focusing on this particular market, I mean, the average age of our client is, you know, in the 40s, so to speak, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. They're aspirational in nature. They're looking for the 2.0 in their world. But that differs farther from a, an executive at a company who is retiring and worth a lot of money, too. It's not that I don't have the passion for it. I just don't know if we have the bandwidth to deal with an individual like that. And so the beauty of independence is... Every single independent can be that. It's great for the consumers, what I'm trying to say. The consumer can really go out and say, okay, this is who I am. This is the firm I'm going. This is who I am. This is the firm I'm going with. Whereas when you go to kind of the monolithic five big banks, you be kind of become one. And I don't think that fits. No, agreed. I think choice is, is always good, right? Right. Choice is great for the consumer, I think. And I'm going to ask you a tough one. Grip your seat. So we've got your <laughs> advice for people looking to go independent. What mistakes have you made or do you think you made kind of in hindsight that you wish you had done differently in that journey of going independent? Well, that could be, I could spend five hours. I've made so many mistakes. It's kind of silly. The biggest mistake I think from a cost perspective is how many people do we really need within a firm? I see a lot of people hiring a lot of people. We have found out over time with our digital workforce, so to speak, we need less people, not more people. It's not a mistake because that makes it sound like those who, you know, we don't work with anymore, they're going to go off and do far more successful things and be a key back. But if you're looking at in hindsight, kind of like where I'm asking, how we can we be more efficient? I see a lot of uh, RIAs and so forth, you know, hire 50 people. That's not my model. So on our side, again, deciding who you want to be and where you want to go. And I think the other side is kind of a cost structure. How much technology do you need, so to speak? And we're finding ourselves, again, with so many bespoke solutions, we don't need these long contracts anymore, you know, with bespoke technology advisors and so forth. We kind of created more of a wheel and we interchanged that wheel. Another one was the plain and simple one is we were going down a path of having advisors be with us. And we chose very early on that that wasn't for us. And it wasn't necessarily a mistake. We're just not good at it. We're not good at managing advisors. And so it wasn't their fault. It was my fault. And we decided to evolve into more of a, an MFO as opposed to an advisory firm. So you can call it, I think mistakes are terrific because they're an immediate reminder that you're wrong immediately. You don't have to wait too long when you put your hand over a stove. It really hurts quickly. Yeah. We've made a lot of those little mistakes over a period of time, but I cherish those mistakes because they just made us so much more efficient today. So I'm grateful for those mistakes, candidly. No, I think that's awesome. I think that's, you know, at least personally, and I think everybody, all the listeners will agree, that is the way to embrace it in this business. You know, learn 
what doesn't work fast and then pivot onto something that yeah. does. For sure. So at Harbor, we're firm believers in active management, though it's important to acknowledge that every financial expert has their own unique perspective on this matter. From your experience, where have you observed active management making the most significant difference? We talked about biases again. So let me just share this with you. I just did this in the team meeting. So on one hand, I'll tell you that biases can either hurt you or help you, right? On the other hand, if you don't have an opinion, you don't belong in the business. Got to have one. Love the ETF stuff, but that's what I call the seesaw pendulum. It keeps you within standard deviation. I totally get that. You don't want to be so wrong. You know what I mean? That you're, you know, the commercial side that you're fired. But active management, in my mind, gives the client an idea of how you're thinking about things, right or wrong. And it tests your mental ability to go out into the marketplace to see if your biases are correct, if that makes any sense. I know that the markets in today's environment are somewhat challenged, right? We have inflation, we have this, we have that. We've been on record well before this inflation scare came on board saying, hey, we think that these really high growth companies are going to be really, really a challenge in the next few years. We even did a podcast with a very well-known short artist and we put that expression in a view. It doesn't mean we loaded up. But that gives you an idea of active management. That basket made us a lot of money. But initially, it lost us money. So it's the gasp and then, oh, we were right. So I am a firm believer in active management. I just believe that it should be kind of that core satellite conversation so that you can be thoughtful and, again, how to approach that vertebra to the client. Oh, that's great. How can people find you, Bruce? What do you use? Do you have social media? What is your website? I'm on LinkedIn under Bruce Lee, not the karate guy. Keyback Wealth Management. Yeah, if you do that, you'll be sorely disappointed. Keyback Wealth Management through that, and you can find your way through me in that. And well, that's good to answer any questions. And I'm kind of one of these types of individuals that if you're another competing advisor and you just want help, when I was at my predecessor firms and so on and so forth, I was always willing to help because I just believe if the community improves, I improve because it's a collaboration and it's a sharing of ideas. If you kind of go in with a closed architecture, I think that's terrific. You also have practices that are not necessarily best practices. And so you're going to make even more mistakes. Anyone wants to reach out to me, I'll always take the call and I'm happy to collaborate. Well, that's great. Thank you very much. Pleasure having you on today, Bruce. Hey, thanks. Have a terrific weekend and rest of your week. Thank you, you too. So now we're going to do my favorite part of the episode, which is I call the lightning round or 60 seconds with Bruce Lee. Are you ready? Kind of. Nickname. Keeps. Hobby. Oh. Most used emoji in texting. Smiley face. Hidden talent. Hidden talent is a cook. What's the number one thing on your bucket list? Travel more to overseas. If you can meet any historical figure, who would it be? Elon Musk. Favorite movie quote? I have no time to bleed. What's the best professional advice you've ever received? Walk to your target. Last concert you attended? You too. Favorite ice cream flavor? Butter pecan. Best movie of all time? Star Wars. Piece of advice that applies to almost any client? Be patient. Most adventurous thing you've ever done? Whitewater rafting. Ebook or physical book? Physical book. Best part of the job? Getting up every day, working out, and getting after it. Able, streaming, or both? I love streaming because I just learned about it. The thing you're most proud of about your advisory practice? The people I work with and that my daughter just joined me. Best part of your job? Best part of my job is solving problems for clients. I love doing it. I love solving their problems. It makes me happy. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just getting started, the Active Advisor brought to you by Harbor Capital offers professional insights for the financial advisor community. 
Visit us at harborcapital.com to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to The Active Advisor on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on investment trends, tried and tested research methods, and what your industry peers are up to. From all of us at Harbor Capital, thanks for tuning in. And now for important disclosures. This material is for informational purposes and is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of 20th of October 2023 and are subject to change. The opinions expressed by the speakers do not necessarily represent the views of Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. to be reliable and are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections and forecasts. There is no guarantee that any of these views will come to pass. This material may not be representative of the experience of other individuals. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the viewer. This material is not legal, tax or accounting advice. Please consult with a qualified professional for this type of advice. Investing involves risk including the risk of loss. Stock markets are volatile and equity values can decline significantly in response to adverse issuer, political, regulatory, market and economic conditions. Fixed income investments are affected by interest rate changes and the creditworthiness of issuers. As interest rates rise, the values of fixed income securities are likely to decrease. Specific companies and issuers are mentioned for educational purposes only and should not be deemed a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Any companies mentioned do not necessarily represent current or future holdings of any investment products. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. This material is prepared by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. is not affiliated with Quebec Wealth Management. All trademarks or product names mentioned herein are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023 Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. All rights reserved.